My name is William Chernoff, and today on the Rhythm Changes podcast, I spoke to Anita Eccleston. I'm meeting Anita in this conversation, although we've run in the same circles for quite a while. She's a trumpet player, vocalist, who's performing at the 2021 Vancouver International Jazz Festival that's coming up at the time of recording. That's the occasion for us talking today. For me, the word that drove this conversation was confidence. Anita has a lot of it. and She's learned a lot about it. Please enjoy. All right, Anita Eccleston, welcome to the Rhythm Changes podcast. Hello, Will. How are you? I'm good. I'm I'm having a great day. Do you like gardening? I do. <laughs> yeah, me too. Just on the balcony, though, in the front and just pots. But what do you have? Um, well, I've got a, a luxuriously large backyard for someone who lives in Vancouver, but uh, we converted large swaths of it to garden boxes. So I've got... Right now, a whole lot of greens, because it's time of the year for greens. Some of them have started to flower, so I'm eating them as quickly as I can. Tomatoes that are coming along, some of them got the curly leaf disease, sadly, so some of them are not really viable, but um, the other half are fine. So (laughs) some of those are in pots, too, because you can grow good tomatoes in pots. I've got, like, so many bell pepper and hot pepper plants. I've got cucumbers. I've, I've got flowers, wildflowers. Um, uh, we have one summer squash out there and uh, a whole bunch of onions, which are sort of failing to grow. So I've decided from now on, I'm just going to buy onions and uh, uh, grow other things instead. <laughs> they're, they're cheap to buy. So, but yeah, I have almost everything. We've tried some things that we aren't doing again, but this year we're actually, we have, a, we have an artichoke plant that we planted last year that this year has produced artichokes. So it's very exciting times in the backyard right now. <laughs> have you always been into gardening or a more recent thing? Uh, you know, my mom, you know, always had a beautiful flower garden and, uh, you know, at our house, um, not so much vegetables, but uh, I would help out. I used to grow lilies as a teenager. I was just sort of romantic uh, li- lily patch. Um, but uh, no, it was just in recent years. It's This is my sixth or fifth, fifth or sixth year with the garden. So we're getting, our, our thumbs are very green now. Um <laughs> We've we've even done things like crop rotation and, <laughs> uh, but uh, we we know how to handle aphids and um, we love our pests like our squirrels and our raccoons even though they dig stuff up. I only know that you're from the Kamloops area originally, but I don't know anything about any musical background that there might be in your family. I think there might be, but was your family musical? Your parents or other relatives? Yeah, well, my dad was a saxophone player in a rockabilly band, uh, like a rock and roll band that toured back in the early 60s. Um, so he he toured all over the States back then when it was a thing. And uh, uh, he's he still plays the sax now. He's um, He and I uh, ended up playing, t- when I was in grade 12, he ended up playing in a blues band with me because um, they needed a sax player. And I was like, oh, I know a guy. Um so uh, we played in a band together. That was my first paying gig was with that band, the Blues Jumpers. Um, and then my mom actually used to sing country music on the radio uh, when she was uh, like a young woman in uh, like rural Alberta. So um, both of them had music in their lives well, long before they met each other. Um, you know, one day dad had to 
he, he had to get a real job, if you will. <laughs> and he, he uh, went to medical school and eventually met my mom. She was a nurse. You know, they got together and they used to jam by the fire up in a Nuvik when they were newlyweds, playing Gordon Lightfoot tunes. And she doesn't play so much music now, although she has taken up uh, percussion with orchestras and you know, like once we kind of left the nest, my siblings and I, uh, they missed taking us to rehearsals. So they started attending rehearsals on their own. My dad is now a classical bass player and a jazz bass player as well. I've only heard one little story about about how your dad took you to buy your trumpet as a young teenager. But I don't know anything else about how they directly influenced you despite their own rich musical lives. So I'm curious to know more about that. <laughs> yeah, my big brother played the trumpet in the stage band at school. And as a little kid, I saw him playing and I thought it was so cool. And there was, of course, an extra trumpet kicking around the house. So I started honking away and he got me doing my first long tones and, and such. And uh, the siblings playing instruments and we would attend music camp in Kamloops every summer. So my first year at music camp, I actually registered as a flute player. And then uh, about a week before camp started, I decided to go back to the trumpet and my fate was set. I joined a beginner band and they promptly kicked me out because I could already play. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, you know, when I was, when I was a, a basically in grade nine, I didn't make the sports teams. I was just too short. Um, and I, you know, I really loved my band teacher. She was, she is really special. Her name is uh, Sydney Griffith. And uh, she, you know, I, I realized, you know, I'm good at the trumpet. So I'm going to lean into that. And I said, Hey, Dad, will you take me to Vancouver to buy a trumpet? And he was like, Yes, I will do that. We came down to Northwest, bought the same trumpet I'm still playing. It's Almost time for an upgrade, I'd say. Um, but we bought a, a really nice, nice Bach Strad 37, and its I, its name is David. He's served me well over these years, <laughs> more than paid for himself. <laughs> so I've been to something like the Douglas College Summer Jazz Intensive myself, and I had an interesting conversation on this podcast with a woman named Emily Wood, who grew up in BC, but is. Uh, doing doctoral studies at the Auditory Development Lab at McMaster University. Um, but she comes out of the fiddle music culture on the Sunshine Coast. And I've worked a little bit in fiddle music education and youth groups myself. But what is it like to be in that music camp in Kamloops? Because that sounds like something different altogether. Yeah, well, the case okay, so of the, it's called Kissam, Kamloops Interior Summer School of Music. And, um, it was, uh, for us, it was a day camp, although we, we used to keep, uh, we would have billets that would come stay with us for three weeks in the summer for the camp. And for me, like, it was my, it was kind of like, the, it felt like attending high school for the first time because we were taking different classes every hour. We weren't in the same classroom all day. I was 12. Um, I took a, classical guitar course as well during that camp. Um, but it was it was like a chance to socialize with people from across the province um, and to make music uh, like it was my first experience in jazz band, my first experience with jazz combo. Um, we got to work with professors that were not local. So they were they came in from other places. Uh, one of my first I guess my first technical teacher besides my brother was Akira Sato. And he teaches I believe he's still at North Texas. Um, he's a great trumpet player. Um, you know, having my first trumpet lesson, 
uh, at camp and then having these experiences with these these jazz musicians. A lot of them had come up from the coast. Um, I think Ingrid Stitt was one of the uh, musicians that I had as a prof as well for combo. But we, you know, you you learn how to improvise. I think my first transcendent moment in a solo where something amazing popped out was on stage at the final concert for for uh, for Kissum. I don't remember which year it was, but you know, you're playing a blues and you're kind of hacking away at the blues scale, and then all of a sudden this lick pops out that's got some cool ghost notes, and you know, you can. I, there's a video of me actually of this moment and like my eyebrows just kind of go up after going where did that come from (laughs) so you know there's some really good memorable moments um you know of growth and growing through that experience can i hit on that lick thing you mentioned a little bit and maybe try and how would you describe like what that actually is like what got unlocked there and how did you learn it from what was required like mentors or individual practice or like how would you share that experience in a way that a non-musician could appreciate how cool it is there's the fundamentals right like there's the knowing how to play your instrument like when you want to play a certain note that that note will be the one that comes out with trumpet it's it's only three buttons so we're reliant on our lips and our ear to hit different harmonics using the same fingering for different for some of the same notes so there's the technique aspect of just being familiar with my instrument and having learned my scales and knowing uh, you know knowing the melody of that song really well but then there's like the oral component too which is you know many hours of just listening to jazz records and for me at that age, I was listening to Wynton Marsalis and Miles Davis, and I hadn't even gotten to Chet yet. You know, um, I was I was still very very early days, and uh, <laughs> I was probably listening to some some Metalwood too. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it, it's it's sort of your ear. I felt a lot of the time speaking the language of jazz at that age, especially. And actually, for many years, as, as I grew, um, was like, I'd have an idea, but I wouldn't always be able to put it out there and actually have it manifest on stage, especially because on stage, you have the nerves and everything. But the beauty of of improv is if you put yourself out there and you are trying to do it, then eventually these little transcendent moments do appear because you're you know the scale you're trying to use you know the form of the song like you know the melody really well you know the shape of the like you know where the chords are going to lead you and even if you can't say even outline all the chords yet because you're still new if your ear and your fingers and your chops all come together that that is that sort of moment where something comes out that even surprises yourself because so many times it feels like you're sort of stuttering your way through a solo um but then when you hit upon the idea that makes sense and (laughs) it just spills out of you without you realizing um yeah it it like those moments became more have become more and more frequent i mean even i still feel like i'm growing you know, I'm still getting better at improv. It's a continuous road. I hope it, I hope I always, always feel like I'm getting better because, you know, then there's, there's new territory and new chord structures and new shapes to find and new pathways to navigate. Yeah, same, feel the same way. And the fortunate thing is like, if you think of somebody like a Clark Terry or some other kind of person who had like legendary mentor status for decades and decades, it's like they probably felt that way. You kind of got the sense that they felt like they were always on the learning journey no matter what, it didn't stop. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, music doesn't really stop. I had someone put that into focus for me when I was in my mid-20s. They said uh, I was upset because my rock band had broken up. And um, it was Henry Small. And he says to me, he said, but Anita, you're never going to stop making music. What are you feeling so stressed out about? You know, because I was like, oh, my band's broken up and I'm getting old. And uh, <laughs> he said to, you know, you're going to be playing music till you're in your 60s. Like, you, you're not going to stop. I know you. And I realized, oh, you're, you're absolutely right. I'm, I don't plan on giving it up. Who is Metalwood? <laughs> Metalwood, uh, like the personnel or <laughs> Metalwood is Brad Turner. Okay. That's all I know. That's all that matters. <laughs> um, as a teenager, I, I definitely had him up on a pedestal and um, I still am in quite a bit of awe. I've, I've managed to play a, a gig with him and I've, 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 uh, uh, met him and hung out with him many times now. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, so the first few times I got to speak with him one-on-one, -on -one, I was definitely a bit dumbstruck. And uh, I even did my, my Capilano uh, audition back in, back in my 12th year of high school. And uh, I got to meet him in person then. And I was sort of gobsmacked that I was just auditioning one-on-one -on -one for him. And I didn't end up coming to CAP. I went to McGill instead. I just had the allure of the international city um, and, uh, and the East. But um, I'm glad I made it back to Vancouver and, and this is my home now. So, uh, you know, it's, it's great to be, to be here. But yeah, um, uh, for me, Metalwood was, was all about the Brad Turner. <laughs> I'm a little biased with trumpet. Had you been to Montreal at that time before you enrolled and went off to McGill? No, no, I had not. It was it was new. I I did like I, I took French all the way through, so I thought I would be fine. Uh, it's a different kind of French there than the French that I learned in school, um, and eventually I, I I got pretty good at it uh, right before I left. <laughs> um, but I. I wanted to go somewhere far and somewhere with a really good program. And I didn't even know how great it was going to be until I was there and I was in it. And, you know, first year is so intensive. And then second year and the third, you know, every year was, was successively more intense yet you started to feel like you understood stuff and you're definitely part of the, you know, the sort of the McGill family. There's a lot of musicians that wonderful musicians that come through that school. Um, some of them only for, you know, a semester or two. Um, I remember when I was in first year, um, Regine uh, from uh, Arcade Fire was in classes with me. <laughs> she was doing vocal transcriptions and stuff. And she went off and they they formed their band. And, you know, by the time I had graduated and uh, and uh, moved back to BC, they were, you know, really started to make a really big name for themselves. So it was really cool, a really cool time to be in Montreal. Like my bass player that I play with here, uh, he actually had graduated the spring before I came in. So we had just missed each other. But now we've been playing together here for, for years, actually. That's Graham Clark. Um, yeah, we just we actually just had rehearsal today for the Jazz Fest. So I came I'm just coming home straight from that. So I'm pretty I'm pretty happy right now just having played music for the first time in over a year with my band. It's uh, it's like kind of I'm on cloud nine a bit. Who else is in that McGill family of yours to this day or that's had a long impact on, on your life since you were there? Um, well, like dear friends that are still in Montreal is like Al McLean, a saxophone player. He's he's one of the funniest people I know. And when I was back there on tour a number of years ago, he came out and we ended up uh, all going out 
and having some micro brew and having a big catch up afterwards. Um, Andy King on, is my, one of my trumpet playing friends. Uh, the Doxus brothers are my boys. Um, um, who else is still in Montreal? A lot of people scattered. Matt Warnock is a guitarist. He lives in Arizona now, but he's been he's been in England and he's been uh, he he did his uh, masters and doctorate at Western Michigan, and he's one of my best friends to this day, um, and one of my favorite guitar. Uh, players to play with. Um, Anna Ruddock, <laughs> she went to McGill too, and she actually, last time I saw her, she was playing on stage with City in Color, uh, rocking out and singing backup vocals. She was my old roommate, and she's just the coolest uh, total rock star. She actually pulled us in after the concert. We got to meet Dallas and uh, hang out for a little bit casually, which was really cool. Did you feel like you were in this Montreal music scene that was holistic and had a whole bunch of genres and the same people who participate across them and you felt like you could participate everywhere? Did it feel wide open in that way? I the the jazz scene in Montreal is 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 interesting in that, you know, there's there's the French side as well as the English side. And then there's there's people that play on both sides. So like as a fresh out of university graduate, you know, I did a lot of performances, but they were kind of scattered in a way. And I, at that time, I hadn't found my voice fully as a player. I would still have these great moments playing it upstairs. But, you know, I didn't play a lot of the French clubs. And there's this funny thing that happens when you graduate from university where you're not sure what you're going to do. You have all these skills and you don't really know anything about the music business. And so I definitely sort of came to a point where I wasn't playing very much. And I didn't have a lot of confidence for jams, which, you know, I, I feel much better about now. But at that time, I felt more shy. I did try. But, you know, it, confidence is a hard thing. And when you're kind of at that awkward stage with your improv and you're you're peers are just that much better. It can be really challenging. And so I, I, the city, the city was hard on me at, at, to a point, to the point where I, I just, you know, part of it was I really just missed all of my family in British Columbia. I missed the mountains. I, I just had too much of the concrete at some point. And, you know, I was working at a sub shop and I was just not really playing music. I was doing a little bit of writing back then, but I had, I had done my first show with original music and I had, it was the first time I'd ever gone home from a show and felt kind of bad. And it was just because I'd put so much personal stuff out there and only like a couple of the songs were good. <laughs> so it was it was this interesting vulnerability. Um, and then, you know, the, the sort of like, I don't know, 23 was a hard year for me. Um, and that was the year I returned back to BC. And then I fell into like the, the, the orchestra and I was playing with the big band and I was uh, in Kamloops. I was in demand all of a sudden in a way that in Montreal, it had been very hard because of the language barrier to build up deeper personal relationships. And also to have, you know, to get a house gig that lasted was, was a tough, tough thing. Um, so yeah. And the other thing was, is as a grad, you know, a lot of the people that I played with had moved away, you know, a few people stayed. Um, and that like those years that I stuck around Montreal, I played with so many great, great guitar players, because I would just, you know, I have my music and I, if I couldn't get one guy, I'd call another guy. So I ended up playing with a lot of really cool players. But um, in the end, I just felt like, you know, the best move for me would be come back west. And uh, it was a good decision. I love visiting Montreal, but my heart is here now. So it sounds like you 
graduated, but you stayed for a little while. And then after that, you went home to Kamloops. And then after some amount of time, then you came here to Vancouver. Yeah. So in Kamloops, like it was sort of like a rebuilding and also growing musically. Like I, I wrote more song. I had this rock band and I started writing songs with them and that improved my confidence. And, you know, it wasn't without its ups and downs. You know, it's one thing I learned is uh, to only work with professionals because those it was a garage band and it was uh, dramatic. Um, I, you know, when a band really breaks up, like a band like that, it feels like a like a real breakup and re- like a relationship breaks up. And, you know, it wasn't without its ugliness. And um, I, you know, I learned so much from being a part of that group. Some of the songs that I wrote for my first album, I, like that ended up on my first album I had written when I was with those guys. Um, but of course, adapting them to my jazz ensemble was a different sound completely. And, uh, and actually a, a more mature take on some of that stuff as well. Um, But, uh, you know, it it was a chance to grow as a player. Like my classical chops went, you know, through the roof, because I'd always been good at classical, but I majored in jazz at that university. So the the playing in the orchestra for five years, I played monumental repertoire, and I learned how to do all the extended techniques that I hadn't learned before. Because I felt, you know, as a cocky 16 year old or 22 year old that I didn't need them, I didn't need to double tongue, but now I can, you know, I can triple tongue and double tongue and do all the things. And so it made me more well rounded. You know, and also at that time, I started to learn how does the music business work and how do I make an album and what is copyright law and what is that all about? And this was during the time when MySpace was really popular and uh, we, you know, we were able to platform ourselves in a different way as a, as a DIY musician. And so things, you know, there was, and Facebook was new, was new. You, know, you create an event on Facebook and invite people, they actually showed up because it was like, whoa, there's an event, you know? So there was, there was this funny, um, transitional time but it was also an awkward stage for music because digital streaming platforms hadn't come into being uh distribution was i mean we had distribution but we didn't you know like cd baby was new everything was new um and you know i can't say everything's better now it's in a lot of ways worse there's not a real way to make money at recording anymore except that you have to make records and so that you can build audience and you can tour how would you describe what you know about the business now and and the lessons that you've learned that are relevant to what you do now? I would say that like in so many ways right now, it's broken. I think a lot of people can agree that say Spotify and other streaming platforms don't pay appropriately for the, um, for the, uh, the plays, the digital plays of, of songs, of people's songs. So that's, that's a really big point of contention, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not taking my music off of Spotify or all the other platforms because I want my music to remain accessible. It really is a fundamentally important thing that people that I meet wherever they are can listen to my music no matter what. Um, the monetization of it, uh, Think about it like this. The music industry, it is constantly changing. But the one thing that really remains true is that people love live concerts. And even despite this pandemic, I think there's going to be a boom for live music after this. I think people are going to be, they're so thirsty for this real in, like in entertainment right there in front of you, you know, whether it's seeing a big concert like people feel catharsis and feel sad or happy or whatever the music makes them feel. And so um, from an artistic standpoint, I, I don't feel the personal pressure to make an album every year. I'd love to have that kind of momentum, but I also, I'm a s- slow writer. 
Um, sometimes songs come out quick, but a lot of the time I chip away at them and I, I, I try them this way or that way. And, and so for me, the process is more about making something really high quality um, that has depth. I, I feel like the music I make, the people who do listen to it, they love it. And that's what matters, you know? It, you know, I remember what I'm, I'm one of those people in between the millennial and the Gen X where you like, I'm right in the middle where I remember what it was like before and I understand and appreciate what it is now. I got Spotify on my phone. I haven't been downloading MP3 so much since then because every album I've ever wanted to listen to that I can, I can usually find. I mean, I still have a stack of CDs in my cupboard behind me, <laughs> but I've, digitized everything you know and so it's this i don't know it's this awkward period will things stabilize only if the music industry actually supports the artists and nowadays it seems like the only way to monetize is to is to you know get sync placements or um you know do live tours and live shows and live streams actually you know the side door access shows that was a i did i did just one of them this year but like during the pandemic but you know, we we had a small audience, but I still made more than I would at a normal club date because I was selling tickets and it was an event and people attended and I would had an interactive audience asking questions and, you know, nieces and nephews dancing and, you know, <laughs> all the fun stuff. And so there was that that uh, ability to connect, even though I was sitting here and they were through the through the screen in the Zoom Um but it was like a live show, you know, so that was a really cool innovation that was sort of born out of the pandemic, a way to do a live performance. Yeah, I actually clipped a Dan Mangan tweet that uh, you retweeted, actually, while I was doing my prep for this. And I want to read it out because it's relevant to exactly what you brought up. Uh, this is him describing something that he thinks is important about how to do a live stream from the performer's perspective. Okay, so this is, this is what he said. Music industry, if your artists are feeling stream fatigue or having trouble selling tickets, he means to online shows, it's because you're selling shows like an experience and then producing them like content, which he s seems to see that as a problem. Focus on the audience. Let it be a community building event. Does that, does that match what you learned or do you have something else to speak to on this? It, it becomes about the gathering of the people. Um, you probably didn't see this other tweet that he did, but he, um, I, uh, I, I saw this again the other day. It came up, but, um, he, uh, he had done a, he was doing a moderation. He was the moderator for the, for the concert through Side Door and, uh, he had like left some like, background music on with a white screen um and the but had left everybody muted on the thing and of course he walked away and forgot he left the meeting going so all these people were all muted and they were hanging out with each other um and they ended up he came back like over an hour later he like went for a walk came back realized everyone was still not everyone was still there but like 12 people were still there and they were playing charades because they couldn't communicate so they were like they had like a coordinated game of charades going after the concert like 
I think they he said once he joined back up, like they were all there for two and a half hours after the concert, just hanging out because, I mean, uh, especially this year, like everyone's sort of starved for company. You don't even realize how much until you're with your company. Like we started a we started a Dungeons and Dragons group um, this spring. Me and my my closest friends and uh, my character, of course, is Dolly. Um, she's modeled after a, a very lovely charismatic woman <laughs> songwriter i'm a bard of course a bard entertainer but like that first night where we got together and we were on the we were in the discord and we were you know hanging out creating our characters and in character i do have a wig um you know <laughs> i have some elf ears um but the you know we were in character and we didn't realize how much we missed each other's company like everyone was just letting loose like a little too much letting loose if you will um it was it was fun though and uh, it became like the once a week event that we were all excited about we'd be looking forward to every weekend because we just we haven't been able to see shows we haven't been able to see each other like it this is a completely unique experience that we've all gone through in the last 16 months that um, I, I I've remember thinking about it last year, thinking about how like the young generation is going to be affected by this year alone. Like, I can't imagine being a child and going through this type of, you know, everything from having to wear masks and just like the, the, the innocence of children and like not understanding that, you know, or, like, and so, um, but that, that also spills into our own lives. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to think of it as a lost year because, like, for me, it was a chance to really sit back at home without the pressure of the next gig right on my plate, but actually just really handcraft all these new songs and, and feelings. And there's been so much emotion this year, like tragedy. I won't be doing it at the Jazz Fest, but I'm working on a song from, from that time, from last April that I was writing about and, you know, just the shock of what was really taking place. You know, I could see it starting and thinking, hey, I can't get that bad, can it? But yeah, it can. It really can. And uh, here we are. Here we are. Um, I, I'm so, so excited for the sense of normalcy to return. You know, I got to see my band today and play with them for the first time. And it was just so nice. And, you know, we catch the groove and they get it. And it's like picking up the conversation where you left off. And, um, uh, you know, <laughs> like when I finish my show at the Jazz Fest this year, I'm sure I'm going to like have a bit of a cry, you know, just for the sheer, um, you know, relief of uh, all the pent up energy, musical energy, and just being able to, and this is the, the main thing is the audience is going to be there. You know, at, at the Ocean Artworks, they have a 50-person audience allowed to attend. And I, I like, I actually feel for the other performers at some of the other venues. I They've got sweet venues like Pyatt Hall and stuff, but there's not going to be an audience in there. And so that changes the dynamic of the performance, too. So when you're not able to feed off the audience's energy and make eye contact with people who are having their own moment, um, you know, one of my favorite things about about writing music is when you write a line and someone really gets it and it's maybe not even the way that you mean it but it hits them and just strikes a chord with them and maybe impacting them in a positive way you know um whether it's a therapeutic way or yeah so you know it to be able to play for an audience is going to be almost almost surreal but i'm sure it'll feel like you know slipping on that 
that really well-worn pair of shoes that I love. One thing I wanted to go back to that you mentioned a couple minutes ago was this idea of being in a bit between two generational tropes. What what is that experience like? Okay, so like a lot of it has to do with like how we perceive ourselves and how other people perceive us. Um, like one of the things that I grew up with was no cell phones. Like, I mean, I guess in the 80s, they had cell phones, but no one I knew had a cell phone. My dad had a pager, you know, and it was like an old, like, made the weirdest analog noise kind of pager. Um, <laughs> like it was this, it was this big, it was, it was quite large. Um, you know, so for me, like, there's, there's this ability to unplug because that was, that was my childhood was playing in the dirt and, you know, building dams from the, for the the person washing their car down the block as it comes towards the thing, you know, like collecting bugs. This was my childhood. Um, I, I, I grew up, I was in high school when much music was having its heyday, you know, radio had put it okay computer when I was in grade 10. It was it was a good time to listen to, you know, music. Um, but we were buying CDs. And so I'm also of the generation that listens to whole albums. I'm I'm all about listening to the entire record. I don't I don't love one hit wonders. Uh, my my least favorite albums I bought back then were the the one hit wonders, and those songs are still on the radio today. Like ironically, <laughs> uh, you know, generationally speaking, I also had the internet. I got you know I still have my old hotmail address, and <laughs> you know I had an email address back in '96, and that's so we had, you know, I got to watch the internet kind of really become what it is today and and you know now it's a lot of it is sifting out the the noise from the good stuff and like i do prefer twitter uh the community on twitter just because it's a little bit less about your own personal stuff necessarily and more about conversations um and i don't even post a lot but i do read a lot and i do find some pretty funny stuff that i that i sometimes will retweet um but uh you know going back to the way you're perceived and uh, you know, I can't imagine what it'd be like for someone of your generation where, you know, it's there's a lot of like pressures, um, you know, to be cool on Instagram or to to like social media being a part of your generation as you're as you're coming coming of age. I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be a teenager and to be concerned with that post that someone made, you know, the, what we had were, you know, the, the, the phone trees and the, the rumor mills and the, you know, uh, uh, people would uh, gossip at school, but like, it, it was a different, uh, yeah, I guess the point is just that I get overwhelmed still sometimes, like there's always the honeymoon period with social media when you first sort of join and stuff. But I definitely feel refreshed when I like don't check Facebook for a whole day or if I um, like I, I do check, you know, for stuff and I do share what I'm doing when it's really awesome. But I just, you know, for the for the humdrum day to day, I I feel like, you know, pick up the phone and call me. Let's chat. Um, you know, text me and say, hey, can I come hang out in your garden? You know, like, it, it, there's something about being there in real life. And in terms of like, how we're perceived, who cares? 
Like it comes down to who cares, you know, like, do you, do you like who you are and what you're sharing with the world? And does it make you happy? Like I have the confidence now that I didn't have in my early twenties. I, I had like false confidence because the, the thought that I knew all things, but you know, the older I get, the more I realize I just don't really know that much. Um, but I do know that I don't know. So that's something, you know, (laughs) we're always learning you know, the, the more genuine you are, the, the better your, your relationships with other people are going to be. And in the end, that's, that's all we have. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'd love to, to hit either album or any recording project that you have in your catalog already. I'm thinking particularly of So It Goes, but you could talk about any of them and what the big lessons you've learned from producing your projects that you've already done and how you reflect on the experience of making them now and what they brought you. I want to hear more about that. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So It Goes. Let's talk about it. Um, I uh, I got a good tax refund, so I decided to make a record. <laughs> it wasn't that great of a tax refund, though. I recorded two songs, uh, Scarlet Scribbles and Claim on You, um, that spring. That was about about 11 years ago now. And um, that album, in some ways, is kind of like a patchwork quilt. I had this idea. I had these two new songs that I had written, and I had a good band that I like to play with, so we recorded. We made those. And we also did a, a, a version of Black Coffee, which I ended up putting onto... Um, a, uh, a jazz EP, which was a collection of old, old like just old recordings of me from university, and uh, and then this newer recording of a more mature version of me. My voice developed, my voice changed uh, as I got older, especially after uh, Amy Winehouse came onto the scene. She kind of really impacted the s- the sort of sound and style that I decided that I liked and wanted to uh, emulate. Um, before that I was, I had kind of a smaller voice, but before that I also hadn't been in a rock band too. So both of those experiences really opened my voice up to a bigger sound. Um, right now I'm actually revisiting the more delicate side with some of my new compositions, but to go back to So It Goes, it took three years to make, but I was only working on it for half of a year every time I sat down to work on it. So it'd be like, you know, sort of six months of intense work and then, you know, then busyness, other things, you know, I moved to Vancouver um, a couple of years, three years before I finished it. I'm actually sitting in the room. This is a weird twist of fate. I'm sitting in the room right now that I recorded a lot of tracks for it in. Um, So that just is because I happened to move into this house after engineer that I worked with had moved out. Um, so I'm sitting in the same room that sang The Good Life. I sang The Good Life in. I remember tracking it. I was standing right here. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it was the things I learned were like things I want to do differently, uh, which I actually did do for the next album for more trumpet was I wanted to use the same band for the whole record so that I got a more uniform sound. Um, Because I ended up having 23, I think, different musicians on So It Goes that I played with three or four different guitar players, um, uh, at least two different bass player, three different bass players. (laughs) But then, you know, I'd bring in a keyboard player for this one track. And so, like I said, it was it was like all the songs were handcrafted and made with love. But also they were kind of my first attempts at songwriting as well. So um, I think I think of most of them as growers, like it's hard to say, oh, that's the hit single off of that album. That's the other thing is that, 
you know, it's a strong album that takes you on a journey from beginning to end. Um, and it has a really good flow. But it's not sort of a classic pop album where you have like this one song that's like, you know, hit central, you know, and I do want that. Like, I would love for a song to be like someone's new favorite song. So, you know, those are songwriting goals, I guess. <laughs> I keep writing good stuff. Um, however, I, I don't know how it's hard to write a really good pop song without sounding super pop, you know, and you know, whenever I see a songwriter talking about the songwriting craft, I like write, I start taking notes. Like one of my favorite notes is from Gord Downey. Um, the, uh, he said, um, when you write a song, you have to imagine that the person you're talking to already knows the whole situation. You don't have to explain everything to them. You can just talk to them, like without explaining yourself. And he was known for not explaining the meanings to his lyrics. So, you know, if you try to figure out what that song's about, it might not be obvious and it might not make sense. But it's it's like a good example is Bob Cajun. You know, that song, you know, try to figure out what it's about, but he'll never tell you what it's about exactly. But it's still one of his best songs, one of their best songs. Um, so there's that piece of advice. Um Another one is from Gordon Lightfoot. He says, um, he said, he said, take your favorite song and try to rewrite it. Um, another one is uh, Dan Megan actually was talking about songwriting last spring on one of his signed door shows. And he said, um, you have to think of like a thesis, like what is your song about for you, at least, even if you don't explain it, like what is the thesis idea um, of the song that you're writing? Um and then you have to try and, you know, put your finger on it and then, you know, get there. I always think of Emily Carr saying, uh, think a thing and then draw a circle around it. You know, so it's it's really just about letting yourself go and letting that creative process kind of come to you. It, you have to carve out time. That's, like I said, one of the things that's been a blessing for me this year is just being able to have the time to sit with my ukulele and my pet bearded dragon and and in, in the sun in the garden and, and uh, let my thoughts swirl around until I can find some sort of words to put down on the page that describe those feelings, you know, and then also, you know, coming up with a great chord structure and then trying to find the melody hidden within it because, you know, like I wrote a jazz song this year that I'm going to play at Jazz Fest and it's it's a, it's got some pretty classic almost like trope like uh chord structure uh devices you know like a you know a, a one you know to a to a one diminished to a uh a two five you know <laughs> and it's like but the song is called walking in circles so you're kind of stuck in these little loops in the song you know and and then finding a melody that hasn't already been written over a structure like that is another challenge so um i ended up doing actually a little bit of word painting with the lyrics which was really neat because it's like the melody will be following what the lyrical content is and so that was i'm actually really proud of it's really hard to write a jazz song i think and at rehearsal today the bass player is like hey why don't you make that chord dominant instead and I was like yes that is I should do that that is a really great idea thank you <laughs> he gets a cut now <laughs> 20% yeah exactly it's, it's, it's exactly right um, so um, it's funny how the process is different every song I write is has a different process but yeah from so it goes I learned that I wanted to workshop the songs live before I record them uh, because they some of the ones I recorded on that album turned into different things live 
in the years that followed. Uh, like, you know, like the epic vibraphone solo on Lovesick that never made the album because we had already recorded the tracks years ahead of time. Um, stuff like that. You mean specifically performing them in front of an audience, right? Not necessarily just more rehearsing. You won't always have that option, I think, when it comes to performing for an audience, like new material. But I, I think there's something to be said for trying stuff out in front of an audience and just sort of seeing what the reception is. And um, a lot of the time, especially as a jazz musician, we don't get a lot of rehearsal time or like, you know, two weeks in the mountains to record an album, like unless we're at PAMP or something. So um, a lot of the time you are testing the water on stage because that's all you get. You don't get a rehearsal. You just show up on the night, got charts, and then you you guys do it um you know we we rehearse for jazz fest because it's special lots of new music for this show so but a lot of the time there isn't that opportunity but finding the right treatment can be difficult for a song um do you know much radiohead repertoire yeah my favorite radiohead album is kid a my second favorite is probably in rainbows my third favorite would probably be the bends like i mean i i get okay computer for sure it's just not like it didn't ever like really snap for me um, so those other ones maybe did more, even though they're all very different. So it's hard for me to kind of pick my favorites. Uh, I, I think Kid A was the most memorable statement album. And then In Rainbows, the whole distribution of In Rainbows, I was 12 when that happened. So it was it, that was out there in the world before I started my career. So I saw like the the aftermath of the way they released the album pay what you want at that time before those tools were available to more and more people and so it, it made sense to me kind of some of the things that followed that and i i credit the memory of of that album coming out at a particular point for me for that mm -hmm. yeah okay so kid a is my uh my um what do you call it uh, desert island disc uh for sure um, best when paired with Amnesiac, just tape them together. They were supposed to be a double disc anyways. They only did two so they could get off their label. I totally agree with that. Uh, in Rainbows, yeah, that was, there was so much innovation going on with the distribution and, um, and also just like the content. I remember covering 15 step back then and just rocking. Um, for me, the reason I brought it up is because, um, this, the last track off of their last album that they've released, hopefully not their last album, um, is called, um, uh, it's called True Love Waits. And uh, are you familiar with that track? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that song, he wrote it in the 90s. And they, they performed it live here and there. There's a, a, an acoustic version on their live album, but they didn't release it for a long time. They kept trying to record it and they just didn't quite get it. Not quite there. So when they finally did, it was, and the, the fans knew, the fans knew about the song because it had made the live record and they had performed it live over the years as a guitar song. But the treat, the final treatment, of course, is as a piano song. And it's so beautiful and you know, when it first came out, we were, there was a health scare in my family and I was worried for my mother. And I remember feeling like uh, just so much, mm, like it's not relief. It's, it's hard to put your finger on that, that emotion of feeling stressed, but then hearing such a beautiful and such a sad song and it making you feel better. Like that concept is a, 
universal one. I think a lot of people can get that. Um, but yeah, it took them a long time to find the right treatment for that song. And actually, I love that album too. A Moon Shaped Pool is dope. <laughs> it's if, if you haven't d- dived too deep, it's definitely a worthwhile one. Um, we, we love Radiohead over here. Um, I got to see t- one of the last concerts I got to see was Tom York, actually, here in Vancouver. So um, we went to a lot of concerts those last few months before uh, the pandemic, actually. So, you know, with with rendering a song, it is about finding the exact right way of producing it. And so for future endeavors, I'm, you know, I'm looking at a collaborative producing partner. Um, and they do more like hip hop stuff. And uh, I, you know, I want like, I like a lot of music, even popular music. And so I want the sound of my next re- record not to be a jazz album and not to be a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of, but to be like kind of like some sort of culmination of all of the sounds kind of put together in one package with enough uniformity that it feels like a, an album that was recorded on the same day with the same people, but also enough, dy- um, you know, sonic contrast that. It represents all the different layers that I can produce, whether, whether I'm playing ukulele, trumpet, singing. Um, you know, I've got an effects processor for my ukulele. I even bought a loop station, so I'm doing some things, you know. Um, and I'm interested in also collaborating with some hip hop artists if I can, if I can pin some down and, you know, doing s- well, first of all, you know, the journey to find a single. <laughs> A song that uh, that really sort of stands out amongst the rest. I feel like they're all really strong, but so, you know, got to find that rehab song, you know, the one that really just like punches through and goes, oh, yeah, no, I'm I'm amazing. Get on board. Get on board this train. Um, the A train. It's a good train. <laughs> um, I like to have fun and laugh and uh, I like good music uh, with good lyrics and uh, I like instrumental music too. Like I love one of the, my favorite things about Jazz Fest is just seeing all the shows and um, listening to all the improvisation, uh, whether it's like more more modern free improvisation or just like people shredding shredding jazz chords. I, I'm also really excited to produce a record with my sister. She's she's moving to town. Uh, my twin sister and uh, we have a band called Girl A Girl B. Uh, we wanted to call it Morning Bell, but the name was taken. So we chose Girl A, Girl B because those were the names on our bracelets as babies in the hospital. She's Girl A, I'm Girl B. And also Kid A, right? It's just like our little little winking at that, uh, at that awesome album and um, and the influences. And so we it's more of a cover band at the moment. <laughs> but now she's going to be here in a week. And uh, we're going to spend the summer writing songs and maybe try to produce an EP for next year. In the meantime, I'm going to be rec- I'm going to be spending time with my dig- digital audio workstation and producing a Christmas EP for next year. I wrote an original Christmas song uh, last year, but it, I was I, it was a little late. So I decided to release it this for this coming year. Christmas comes around every year. So. Uh, and then I'm going to put together some fun takes on some, some you know, some wacky takes on some of the uh, more traditional carols and just put a little put a little release out there because it's been a little while since I've given my audience anything, anything uh, to listen to that's new. And um, and then, yeah, then we start start the recording process for a lot of these new songs that I've been writing. And like I said, working with a producer and maybe like 
hitting up some styles I haven't necessarily hit up yet, like uh, the more hip hop side of things and just some really fat beats if I can find them. And <laughs> so, you know, I like to make music that makes people happy. Looking forward to seeing seeing you around Jazz Fest to whatever extent that happens to be possible. Gosh, I have no idea, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, there there's these live shows, right? So I've got tickets to some of the mostly just the well, just the free Granville Island stuff. That's what I would always hit up at the very least. Um, um, so I I've got tickets to a few a few shows. I got tickets to Crystal Dos Santos, Marianchetta. In other years, I will literally stop teaching abruptly when the festival starts and like be at shows all day every day as as long as I can stand it and then I come home and like let my hair down and <laughs> I try to get some sleep before the next set um but uh like in 2019 I saw 44 shows like it was amazing it was a really good festival I didn't even play that year but I I just saw all the good music that year um but uh, it was cool because coming home after that, I, I was I was teaching after the festival. I was teaching a jazz lesson, and we were doing some improv, and uh, some weird, cool things came out of my trumpet that I was like, "Where? What? Like, like you know, like we were talking about earlier." I didn't think to myself, "I'm going to play this scale and this chord, and then arpeggiate there, and then put a triplet in." I didn't think of any of those things. I just my ear had been so exposed to so much cool, you know, improv that something unique popped out because I had been saturating myself with it. And it is for me, it's like my refreshing time of year where I, I, um, I oversaturate myself with jazz and then I catch my breath for a little while and um, just sort of ride that high through the rest of the summer. Oftentimes, you know, in the summer, I'll be doing all kinds of gigging with the mariachi band. You know, we went to LA a couple years ago um, and Mexico the year before. So there's, you know, summer brings different adventures and usually more gigging than teaching. And I'm kind of hoping to phase the teaching out a fair bit, although it was the thing that kind of saved me this year when the pandemic hit. I still taught the whole way through when the gigs dried up, but... uh, I really want to get to a place where I'm just writing, producing, touring, writing, producing, touring. I know that in the middle of all that, there's also grant writing and, you know, <laughs> there's all these other things that you have to do to to make the wheels turn. But um, I think the older we get, the more focused we get on how, how we're going to do it. And um, yeah, I'm definitely honed right in on the songwriting right now thinking a lot about like i said dolly parton you know she writes a song she gets an idea she just writes it down right away and i love that can i ask you about pledge music sure okay so i mean if you go to pledgemusic.com today of course or any time in the last two years what you see is a winding up order was made against pledgemusic.com limited in the high court of justice on 31 july 2019 whoa a winding up what does that mean Oh, so do you know about this? No. Okay, Pledge Music went bankrupt. Uh, and so everything's offline for them. There was some shady stuff going on there. I'm not clear on exactly what it is. Ooh. So I don't I don't have much insight into that. But there's probably information out there yeah. uh, in the news and podcasts about what happened to it and why it is no longer a thing. But you did a campaign there. I did. I could not learn anything about your campaign because they took the whole website down. So what, what kind of nuts and bolts can you share about your campaign? 
This was for So It Goes. Yeah, for So It Goes. Yeah, we ran a successful campaign. Okay, so, um, you know, retros- retrospectively, I might have been done better to do Indiegogo because I think they took less of a commission. Um, uh, but the commission was kind of, it was that was the one thing I didn't like. It was, it was kind of high, but it was... Gear- it's 15, right? Or is it more? Well, was, I guess. <laughs> uh, it might have been 15. Yeah, something. I, you know, we're talking about seven years ago, so I'm like, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to remember. But what I what I do know is that it was it was kind of intense. Um you know, you, you, you go through their sort of little process of creating your, your different, uh, sort of, uh, pl- you've, you've viewed an Indiegogo, I'm assuming, so, or a Kickstarter. So there's different sort of price points where if people donate this, they get this. And so I had all these different tiers, you know, one of them was like one of the more fancy ones was like the, uh, uh, the the handwritten songbooks of all the songs handwritten out for you to play along with, uh, which you know only my sister <laughs> redeemed. Um, but there was you know I was selling trumpet lessons and I was I was uh, one person redeemed a play a round of disc golf with me. So when I was up in Kamloops, I played a round of disc golf with that person, and um, you know so I I got kind of inventive with my prizes. Um, you know as a lot of people they they kind of they had good advice like you know most people would pledge about twenty five dollars. Some people will do more and some people will do 10. So make the base level one and the $25 options really good options. And then other people will do different things. So it was it was intense and you had to make your goal. So if you didn't make your goal, um, you didn't get the money. And I think everyone would get refunded at that time. I don't think they would keep it. I think they actually don't get charged. Like the credit card info gets retained and they don't get charged unless you successfully complete. That's how it works exactly on Kickstarters. Yeah, I think it was, I think it was something like that. Um, but, um, honestly, it was, it was a little intense. It was a lot of work for, you know, and it was good. I mean, I got the funding. Um, what was your goal? My goal was, uh, 4,000, I think. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I, was that what my goal was? Yeah. Something like that. Like we, you know, we, we got close and then I had one pledger come and, you know, tip me right over, um, the scales. So I think I still owe them trumpet lessons, but you know, they never cared to redeem. So it's like some of those things are kind of funny that way. People just want to support and they think it's funny. Um, you know, in the end, it was a little more work than I had anticipated. It, it was hard to get the, it was hard to keep the momentum going even. And, and like, they were emailing me all the time saying, you need to do this. You need to do that. And I was like, I'm trying. <laughs> Who pledged music or your actual supporters? No, no, pledge music. Oh, wow. They had like a, a whole program where they, they wanted you to reach your goal because that's how they make their money. Right. So they had a, the reason I chose pledge music was because it was, um, it was more geared towards specifically musicians making albums. And at that time, it was really, really difficult to get any kind of funding for recordings. Um, now that we've got Factor, and I mean, I think Factor was around back then, but the the eligibility was different. The system has been completely overhauled, right? Factor's been around since the 80s. Yeah, exactly. But, but, but you had to have like... Um, proof of certain amount of CD sales to be even like kind of considered and all this stuff. But now they've got that new, the new system and it's a little complicated to use. Um, but uh, you can create your online profile and most people are on the general level, except for like more established artists and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, it's hard to track inventory when you're selling side stage and that stuff doesn't count as CD sales, even if you're selling units. So, and you know, I've sold the most units side stage than I have in stores you know, I'm an indie artist. I have s- stuff on consignment at the local record shops, but I'm not at Future Shop. Oh, neither is Future Shop anymore. <laughs> but like, no one buys CDs anymore anyway. So like, 
I mean, I know people that don't even make CDs anymore. They're just like, no, I'm releasing a, a, an album. I'll only make el- like I'll make a, a record. Okay, if you came up with another full length project, what would you make? What would you manufacture for it today? And you could also maybe tie in. Well, what would you do in terms of funding, like specifically like non dilutive funding that's not you, like something like like a, a campaign like you've done? Would would you do something like that again, or would you take a different approach? today and what would you make um well first of all i would definitely try to get grants like i would try to get every possible recording grant that i could get um i would consider going the benefactor route like you can get inventive these days right because if you have a few devoted fans and they're all willing to pitch in then you wouldn't even necessarily have to use a platform like pledge music um or or indiegogo although indiegogo would be a a decent way to go still i think if you wanted to get funding in a more grassroots kind of way um that all being said a lot of people are really tired of that whole format so it maybe is not the most viable um but yeah grants uh creative recording um being willing to invest in your own project that's a that's kind of a big one. I'm, I'm all about putting together a comprehensive budget and then sort of like, you know, trying to figure out ways to make it make it go. Uh, fundraising performance even or like, you know, a tour to make a record. You know, I actually made money on the road, which, which always surprised me. I thought I wouldn't. But, you know, the, you're gigging like every day, sometimes a couple times a day. So the gigs actually add up. So long as your budget for travel is not over budget. So budget is important. Um, but uh, if I was going to put together a package, just like say I get all the funding that I need for this dream package, um, I would definitely do like a, a, a like a vinyl release, a, a, a very limited run, like, you know, make the least number I can, <laughs> like make 50 copies and, you know, the real collectors will grab them. And you can charge more for that kind of uh, product. I would, like I said, it's for me, it's a lot of it would be about um, how you roll out your album. It's like creating, creating interest in it, getting enough buzz. Like I've done a, a couple of, I guess I've done three radio campaigns and I'm, I'm one of those people who just doesn't have a manager or an agent or anything. So I do it all myself. Um, with the the constant reminder from fans that they want it, and it's not just me doing it for vanity, um, they there is demand for it. So um, you know, the campus of communities, we had lots of good charting. Uh, I think I reached number five in Canada on the national charts at one point. That was that's my thing to brag about. <laughs> is that like the earshot chart? Yeah, the earshot chart. Yeah, I, I clocked in at number five on uh, the national jazz, which was like pretty gratifying. I was like. Oh my God, all this work. Yay. Um, but it's so easy to lose momentum after you release, especially if it's just you, you know, like you're not sort of getting the push from a label or from a, a manager or such. So there I've, for artists that I've seen release albums more recently, I've sort of tried to encourage them, you know, it's a good record. You should keep pushing, you know, keep, keep going around and keep, keep, uh, keep the momentum because I know what it's like to kind of finish and be like, Ugh, okay, you know, I did it is done, you know, and then you're not really supporting the record as much as you could be. And records have a life. They, they, they can live for a couple of years, a few years. My album, <laughs> it's been a funny year. I spent a lot of time on Twitch this year, not streaming, but making friends. I 
have a whole collection of people now that I never knew before that now know my music through like my my sister is a streamer and so she plays my music and then other streamers have said to me well I'm getting DMCA strikes can I play your music and I'm like yeah you can play my music so there are other streamers now playing my albums as like a background for their video gaming and that's really or their art and it's it's really flattering and it's also really cool because it gets my music out there in more ears. And, you know, I'm not making profit off that, but there's there comes a point where it's like, can I just sustain and keep making music? You know, how how much profit is there in this business? And I know there's obviously lots for the major players, but, you know, are you making music that's quality that people like? Um, or do you enjoy doing it? Uh, is it making you happy? Like, um, is is it sustainable for you? Is the is the lifestyle of being a musician a sustainable thing? Um, and you know, sometimes I'll get to do a gig with, say, a different bass player that I haven't played with ever before. I, I did a gig with one of the last ones before the pandemic. I played with Carrie Galloway um, at uh, we did like a Revel Room gig, and he had never played with me, and he didn't know my voice or anything. And it was really neat because he was reacting all night to learning new things about what I could do with my voice or like we played one of my new original songs and he was you know just afterwards he's like I love your songwriting and like for me I'm just like oh that's so what a compliment you know like um from such a you know a skilled and seasoned musician to feel like okay yeah I I that see I like that more than a Facebook like you know it's much more gratifying to have a peer be like yes this is good, you know, and we can live off moments like that for weeks, you know, and throw all our passion towards it. You know, music isn't my hobby. Um, but, you know, playing music can be, it's just, it's a combination of therapeutic and gratifying. And, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, and then getting to play with new players. Like, I love playing with the same guys, but I also love having you know, having a sub in for that night and then hearing what they do with my original song, because sometimes it's different. And that's cool. I like that, you know, especially on the, the, the jazzy songs or like the reggae tune. The style changes with every new incarnation of the band, you know. <laughs> okay, imagine we have our own Banff Center thing type experience in BC. Imagine that you're in Pemberton or whatever, and, and you're in the woods and it's only a couple of jazz musicians from here. And like you can only bring like a fixed band of yourself. And you probably all have to fit in one car or two cars with like whatever you need to bring. But that there is this thing where you can go there and imagine there is a space where you can record to your heart's content at no other cost other than just being there and bringing everybody there. And that you have this kind of communal isolation to work on something for for one week or two weeks. Uh, what would you do, and like, how would that be different from these other things that you've done? Oh, um, well, you know, it just the question reminds me of uh, Radiohead getting together to try and make Kid A, and they all had a bunch of new toys, and they the first couple of days they were all just reading manuals to all these new gadgets and gizmos that they had bought and they they didn't some of the members of the band wanted to make another guitar record but some of them didn't like johnny did not want to make another guitar record neither did tom 
And so they they had their bits and bobs, bits and <laughs> all their little things. I'm just like talking, you know, like samplers and voice modulators and, you know, Owens Martineau. Um, and they they had that isolation to create. And I think I would like to bring in not necessarily a set of jazz musicians, but actually like somebody who makes beats and somebody and just a really sick bass player for sure. Definitely just like, you know. Give me Colin Greenwood, please. Everybody just needs a really good bass player. Just I'm not stroking your ego. I'm just telling you how it is. It's really, it's probably one of the most important roles in the band. And, uh, but, but, uh, but the, the experience would be to try to find the new sound. No. <laughs> so it's like a mighty boosh reference, but, but really it, it is about finding a new sound, something that elevates. And but draws from the old, but sort of takes sound the sound of an ensemble to a different level. I don't, I wouldn't want to make the same old record. Um, one of my favorite bands that came out of a Banff situation is Brastronaut. Do you know Brastronaut? Yeah, and like their music is really hard to pin down. Like, what style is it? Right? Um, like those guys are all so different, and yet they're brothers. And they come together and they make these extraordinary records. I don't know if or when there'll be another one, maybe one day. I got the pleasure of playing with them. And so I got to be inside the not only the rehearsal space, but inside the songs as they were happening on stage instead of bopping in the in the audience. And like that experience was was really special. Uh, Sam is a dear the clarinet player and EB player is a dear friend. And um so and they knew that I come to all their shows. So they invited me to come be on stage with them and play my trumpet. We had three trumpets that night. <laughs> um so uh you know that I think that you can find something that you don't expect in that situation. Um, but for me, I would want to have a little bit of modern edge, uh, just to be a little bit cutting. And, you know, I don't want to, I, like, I want, and it's kind of cliche to say this, but I want to innovate if I can. I've been guilty of covering songs like the, like the original. And I'm getting away from that now. Um, as much as possible, <laughs> just sort of s sick of doing the exact same version as I hear on the record. I mean, th there's something to be said for that. But, um, you know, we have a little surprise for Jazz Fest. We're going to do a take on an old, an old, old jazz standard that's a complete reharmonization, completely different sound and style. And I wrote my own verse for it. So that's going to, we're going to finish the show with that. Uh, it's a version of St. James Infirmary, unlike all the rest. I'm really stoked. It felt so good today with the band. Um, but uh, yeah, it, just trying new stuff um, while still capturing the essence of, you know, the complex harmonies, the risk taking of improv, and then also just being open to weird changes and things that, you know, it's, it's being able to say yes to what's presented, whether it's something you like or don't like right away, but but accepting it and seeing if you can like it. Um, uh, we tend to reject new things in our ears until we've heard it a second time. And uh, I mean, that's the that's the best kind of song, right? <laughs> the one that you're like, eh, but then like, after you've heard it four times, you are in love with that song and you will listen to it till the day you die. <laughs> so um, growers are, are worthwhile, but uh, I'm not opposed to making sort of 
like higher art uh, exploration music. Um, you know, my own personal project is like I sort of you've probably gotten the idea is about songwriting and um, meshing the simplicity of a good pop song with the beautiful complex harmony of jazz and everything that I know about jazz and classical music too. Um, I've written for orchestra. It's fun. <laughs> There's so many voices to play with. Um, it's almost hard to, to use restraint. Uh, that's another thing I've learned is, you know, trying to use more restraint when orchestrating things and, um, you know, uh, maximizing all the different sounds that you can combine rather than just throwing everybody in. I mean, there's nothing like a good chorus, but. <laughs> um, I think we need the full two weeks here so that we can think through all this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Okay. Last, last thing. This is more of a amusing thing and hopefully not going to feel too much like putting you on the spot. That's definitely not the intention. You can pick whatever you like. I'm not looking for anything here, but. Um, you have a list of gigs on your website. Do you know how many gigs you have listed on your website? I know that in 2015, I did over 50, I think. Can I tell you how many it is total? Because it goes back many, many years. I just copy and paste into Excel so I could see how many lines there are. Do you know how many gigs in total? I don't know how many in total, but I do know that I've got all of them there. It's my That's my archive right there that you just did. Well, how many? 294 wow wow uh and like there was like a year where i didn't kick and <laughs> that's cool i mean i know there are some people who have done many many more than that but that's that's um i'm very at home on stage i i feel good in front of a crowd and i i'm i'm quite I, i'm very good at improv humor on stage too <laughs> so i like to i like to make them laugh as well as um, is that what you call it when your bandmates make fun of you <laughs> um it's all about how you respond um my guitarist andrew and i have a game uh we try to crack each other up and whoever can successfully crack the other person up wins the night um and sometimes i'll say something that just you know tickles his funny bone and he'll just he can't reply he just starts laughing and sometimes it's me that just loses loses it and i think you know in the end it's actually the, it's the rapport between you and your bandmates that can be the charm factor for the audience you know, they feel like they're part of your like little conversation and they are i mean they're right there you know and i love it when someone will shout something from the crowd um and if it's not something nice um i've got that covered too <laughs> i've 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 handled a heckler or two um even the loving hecklers <laughs> Well, I'm really looking forward to hearing you real soon at the Jazz Fest, and I know it's going to be a wonderful time. And thank you for taking the time with me today. I really enjoyed it. Oh, my pleasure. If you like this podcast, subscribe to get more from wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you really like this kind of thing, please enjoy our work at rhythmchanges.ca. That's where you'll find people like yourself telling stories about Vancouver, BC's music community. You can support us directly at patreon.com slash rhythmchanges. We're funded entirely by people like you. Thanks again, and we'll catch you next time on the Rhythm Changes podcast. Rhythm Changes is a Chernoff Music production.